Psalm chapter 12, verses 6 to 7, reading. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us all bow our heads and turn to God in prayer. Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for genuine mercies to thy house, and especially that we have this privilege to be in person in thy house to worship you, to receive your word, and to serve you. And Father, as we come, we seek again and afresh the cleansing and washing in the blood of our Saviour. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, help us to understand your word clearly. And Lord, in understanding, we would know how to defend Holy Scriptures, and that our faith would truly be squarely placed upon your infallible, your inerrant, and your perfectly preserved word. So be with us, help us to understand the history of how we have gotten our Bibles and why it is important. So be with us now, remove every distraction, help us to concentrate. We ask and pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... This is basic Bible knowledge. Here we study the critical um, basic understanding and doctrines of the Bible, of the Word of God, of our Christian faith. Now, very often people wonder, how did we get so many versions of the Bible in English? So many translations. How did it come about? We must, as Christians, understand that, all right? Because it is a very huge issue in Christendom. Why is it such a big issue in Christendom? Now we saw last week, how did we get the Bible? Now there were, oops. We saw last week, the original Bible in the Hebrew and the Greek languages, written on stone animal skins. Uh, it keeps doing that. Still does that. Okay. For some reason, it's refusing to move up, move into pen mode. Yeah, I think it zoomed out. Yeah. Hang on. All right. Apologize. Now, when we know that the original Bible was written on stones, on animal skins, on papyrus, now those are called the autographs. Autographs, right? The very original documents. Now, of course, those they get lost. They get disintegrated. Now then, how do people get the Bible? They copy them. There, are, there were no printing press, printing machines during Moses' time, during the New Testament church. So the copied copies are called the apographs, all right? And so they're hand copied. Now then, many copies, many copies were passed on to the churches and so on. Now these copies 
uh, very consistent, very close. Why? Because there are copyist error. People do copy it wrongly. People do um, intentionally corrupt it. The unbelievers who want to um, the want to um, make people believe in the wrong doctrines. For example, that Jesus is God. They would intentionally corrupt the word. So as the church um, look at all these copies, they threw away. They discarded. All right. They discarded this erroneous copies. So there were lots of them, of course, over the year. Now, on this line, this is what we call the textus receptus in Greek, the Masoretic text in Hebrew. So this line of text, this line of text were used by the church, the Christians, for centuries, all right, for centuries and centuries, even thousands of years. Now, at one point in the 14th and 15th century, they began to translate it, all right? They translate it, and then eventually we have, in the 15th century, the King James translation. King James translation. So to today, we have the King James version, the version that we use in our church. Now, but along the way, now this was in the, that century, in the 1800s, all right? In the 1800s, 19th century, Tischendorf, this man, he found this corrupted um, copies that were being burned, being thrown away, he got very excited and he collected them. He collected them. So notice from the, from the 14th, 15th century to now, a very big gap where no one used this Alexandrian text. All right? No one used it. They re the church always rejected. There's so many errors, but this man collected it together. And over time, Two men called Westcott and Hort, right? These are in your BBK books. Westcott and Hort. So many of you who use um, um, the modern English versions, you will see in the preface, Westcott and Hort text and all that. Two men, they collected Tischendorf's text and they put it together and they formed a New Testament text, all right? So it's called the Westcott and Hort text compared to this line, this line here, which is the Textus Receptus. It's always received from the church, very consistent, they used it. So Westcott and Hort um, then began to put together a text. Now then, from that Greek text, from that Greek text is where we got all other modern English versions. So as long as you are not using a King James version, you will know that all other English translations are using the Westcott and Hort text. Now, these texts, of course, have so many differences within themselves. Of course, because it's human errors and intentional errors, they were all there and they were thrown away. So you would expect that there are tons of errors there compared to this very consistent text. That is how we end up with different English translations. So these texts, they get translated to English Bibles, for example. Now, so text is the first thing we must realize about a Bible. What is the text underneath the English translation that you have? Now, obviously, this alone would tell us that it does not make sense to use this cor corrupted 
text. Who, which one of you in school, knowing that <clears throat> this textbook have been printed or written with so many errors, all right? And then you would say, well, I do not want to use those that are very consistent. I choose to use the very corrupted one, thrown away ones. Your seniors threw them away and then you keep picking it up and using it. You won't do that. Now, the second thing about the Bible that we have to realize in history, by the way, please know that what I am covering here is not made up by our church, it's not made up by my thinking. These are all documented facts about the history of the modern English versions and the King James Version. You can search it out. People who use this text also document the same history, all right? So I'm just telling you historical facts. Now, there are four T's that we must remember about the Bible, the translations. Remember, these are the original languages, original languages, all right, original languages in um, Greek and Hebrew. And regarding translations, like our English Bible, the first thing is to identify the text. Now, then the second is to think about the translators. Who are the translators? Now, when you think of these men, the translators, they put together the Greek text, and then they also translated, they formed committees to translate it into the English Bible. Now, over here on the Byzantine text line, now, they were godly, holy men that were carefully selected by King James, for example, to form a committee of believers that were known to be godly and also known to have very exceptional abilities to understand the languages. In fact, <clears throat> at this point of time in history, at this point of time in history, it is a very unique time in the world, the period of the Enlightenment. Um, and it is a time where God will move the hearts of people of the world to move or we we'll say return to interest in the original languages, all right, of the world. Because some of these original languages, um, they are dead. So dead meaning to say, over time, things have changed. The meaning of words, um, the phrases, and so on. So certain languages, although we have the Greek Bible, they are, it is a dead language. Dead not meaning that it is, it is um, false and bad. All right? So for example, um, you meet a Greek, a person today from Greece, he speaks Greek, he, he reads Greek, but when he reads, the original Bible, he won't really understand it. Okay, some of you who are from um, Bethel, BPC, you, you have a Greek deacon there, and he says it's totally different. Now, it's a dead language. Dead means they understood it then. It's fixed, fixed, unchangeable. What that word meant, what those texts, those phrases, the vocabulary meant is fixed. We can't apply today's understanding on them. So then, people were very interested in the original languages. And God will endow men 
in a very unique time in history and never again to be repeated, people, translators, who were fluent in languages, they could speak, write, critique the English language, the Greek language, the Hebrew language, and other languages very fluently. Exceptional time given by the knowledge of God because it's a time where God would translate, would desire to translate the Bible into a language that the world understands. Up to then, well, Greek, well, very um, known for its literature, its culture, its, its influence in the world. So it was Greek. God used the Greek language. But God, being the creator of the world and the ruler of history, intends that English would be the common language of the world, which is today. So before that, God already started to plan for a translation in a language from a date or fixed, very firm language that he has spoken um, um, the Bible with into a language that the world would generally be able to use. Of course, there are other translations as well. But this would be the key one that the world would need because of the change in the common language of the world. Now, the, to, able, to be able to translate something, you not only need to be very, very fluent and expert in the original language, in this case, for example, Greek, you must be extremely good in the language you are translating it to. Otherwise, you will translate it inaccurately. Otherwise, you would translate it with your own thoughts rather than the words of God. You will translate the thought, that's all. It's inaccurate. So at that time, God would change the whole world, mankind's history. Unique men, they could move between these languages, speak and just switch between them with perfect um, um, syntax, vocabulary and, and, and um, phrasing. They, understand, they understood it so well. Now, so God would raise godly men, not just any men. Your great translator, well, the world also has many of them. But God would only move and use um, King James to, chose, to choose the, the ones that are, that are known, spiritual men, godly men, who knew the word of God very well. All right? So that is how this King James Version got translated into the English language. And they were extremely careful now, just in case you do not know, we celebrated the um, King James Bible anniversary hundreds of years. And one of the things even the world recognizes, the literature world recognizes that this Bible, the King James Version, is one of the greatest contribution to the English-speaking world in its language. Because there were many words in, that we use today in English, that never existed. It was because of the translation of the Bible, because the Hebrew and the Greek had words which there is no way to translate it into another language. And they coined new words. And subsequently, those words became words that the English language will come to use and know and use. So even the unbelieving world hails this as one of the greatest piece of um, literature work that contributed to the English-speaking world's um, knowledge, understanding, and also usage of the English words. So, 
Now, so that is what happened, how we got the King James Version. But, so it's been used for hundreds of years, <clears throat> hundreds of years, until this came along. Now we have to look at the translators that were using this highly corrupted, unwanted, discarded text, but they were intent to replace the textus receptus, Westcott and Hort, they were intent, they were purposeful in their heart, they wanted to replace this text. In fact, they had a code work among themselves and you read it in history, they call it the scheme. The scheme, all right? They would use a code word. Their aim was to use, get their text to be recognized and people would then translate all English versions from their text. Now, who are these translators? We got to know them. This man, West, this men, these two persons, Westcott and Hort, who were intent on using Tischendorf's collected text. Now, they, or people have compiled their letters, even their own children write about this man. Now, I'll just try and show you the letters compiled, right? Just, just samples, that's all. You can get this book off the internet um, and, and um, actually read. There were so many thoughts in there, letters compiled and collected. So, for example, now what is their thinking? Now, so to the Reverend So they were pastors to the Reverend B.F. Westcott. Now, so um, written to him, Hort and Westcott, they exchanged letters. Now, he says this in, the, in, the, in this last paragraph. I, said, I have been persuaded for many years that Mary worship and Jesus worship have very much in common in their causes and their results. Now, then he said, perhaps the whole question may be said, to be involved in the idea of the true idea of mediation. Now, what is he saying? And he even says that almost universally corrupted, and they are all both in opposite direction. But he, they are for Mary worship. So these two men, they were sympathizers of the Roman Catholic beliefs that we should worship Mary like we worship Jesus, and probably. This whole concept that Jesus is the mediator needs to be questioned because Mary is also the mediatrix. So in their heart and mind, their theology, this man, they were pretty much people whose theology were corrupt. Corrupt. Then just to show you one other example. Now Westcott wrote to Hort. <clears throat> now please note the date and so on. It's much later after the King James Version. And they're trying to promote their, their own text, their own corrupted Greek and Greek text. Now, so written to Westcott writes to Hort. My dear Hort, I'm very glad to have seen both your note and Lightfoot. Lightfoot is another one of the translators. Now, glad too that we had such an opportunity to speak op to openly speak. He said, you know, there are some things in my heart we openly talk about there. I'm so glad as translators. <clears throat> and he says for I too must disclaim setting forth infallibility in front of my convictions. What he's saying, <clears throat> he said, I'm so glad, uh, Mr. Hort, you and Lightfoot, 
as translators, like you, I'm glad that, you know, we both, we all disclaim infallibility. Infallibility means God's word cannot make errors. That's the meaning of infallible. We've been memorizing what is the Bible, right? Inerrant, infallible, cannot make error, no errors. Now, please note, these are their own letters. These are their writing. No one has refuted that. These are actual documentations. So he says, we must disclaim infallibility. Imagine someone who's translating the Bible do not believe that the original texts are infallible. means he believes that there are errors. Now, he says further, <clears throat> I can't put this in front of my convictions. His convictions, his beliefs are the Bible is not infallible. Now, next. All I hold is the more, that the more I learn, the more I am convinced. So the more he read all these many, many texts that they've collected, the more he's convinced that fresh doubts come from my own ignorance and that at present I find the presumption in favor of, in, in favor of absolute truth. I reject the infallibility of Holy Scriptures overwhelmingly. So these are the people who have put together this corrupt text. The more they study, the more there's so many errors, thousands and thousands. Of course, there are so many contradictions. See, to him, he said, there are so much contradictions. I come to the conclusion that I must reject infallibility of Scripture overwhelmingly. That is what they are, the translators. That is their heart. Now, he acknowledged, of course, I feel difficulties which at present I cannot solve and which I hope never to hope to solve. What is he saying? He said, you know, look at all these texts that we are having and we are trying to put them together and we are trying to figure out just one verse in the New Testament, for example. We have thousands of, of different versions of it, naturally, because hundreds and thousands of years, people have been copying it wrongly. He said, I come to the conclusion it can't be solved and I don't intend to solve it. Now, that is why when you read modern versions, you will see very often in the front or at the bottom for a particular Bible verse, they will say, you know, this text says this, that text says this, this text says this, that text says this, but maybe the best text is right. But again, so it's confusion. Confusion. They claim that they, will, they, they do not know. Let's come back to the drawing. Oops, sorry. Why are there so many errors? Simple reason. They are discarded, erroneous texts. Now, there, then there is other translators that were involved. Now, there is, at this point of time up here, there are already Unitarians. Unitarians are cults. Unitarians are called Unitarians because they do not believe that they do not believe in the Trini Trinity. All right. So we've studied in BBK what is the Trinity. It is clearly in the Bible. Trinity. So they do not believe that they are Unitarians. They only believe they believe only that God the Father is God. Jesus Christ is not God. 
Jesus Christ is just a great prophet, great creation of God. That's it. But he is not God. So they're called Unitarians. That is why at that point of time, there were already texts, already many texts that people, the Unitarians intentionally corrupt. They may not be called Unitarians at that time, but their the convictions are there. They intentionally corrupt them, and therefore there exist many texts that when it comes to the divinity of Christ, that Jesus is God, they would corrupt it. They would change it. So it exists down here already, this text. So, now why do I tell you that? Because not only this man, they, in fact, they were also known in other places, their writings, that even their own children acknowledged that they were men that were very, they had an inordinate interest in the darkness, mysticism, all right, occultism, they were known for that. Their own children acknowledged that. So these are the translators, not godly men with sound theology. Now then, at the point where they were translating it, Westcott was very insistent. I say again, these are not my concoction. These are historical facts written and documented. Now, Westcott wanted a man called Vance Smith, all right? Vance Smith, to be part of the translating committee. But... The other people in the committee were very concerned. Why? Because Van Smith is a known Unitarian. He was a known Unitarian, meaning to say he, he, he pastors a Unitarian church which openly teaches Jesus is not God. Now, Westcott and Hort, they Westcott especially insisted that Van Smith must be on it. So the committee said, no, how can we put a Unitarian in there? It's ridiculous. All right, they are not even saved people. They do not believe that Jesus is God. How can they be Christians? So he said no. But Westcott and Westcott threatened, if Van Smith is not allowed to be on the translating committee, he will resign. Of course, they panic because these texts are put together by Westcott and Hot. If Westcott resigns, how are they going to work? So the committee had to succumb to that. Now, Van Smith, of course, being on the committee, knowing that they are going to decide on a text that will be used to translate to many English versions, translate to English versions at least. Now, he would definitely be intent on corrupting any Bible verse that would, that would in um, that cannot be argued that Jesus is God. He would want to corrupt that, and that's exactly what he did. Now, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So we're talking about translators that are involved not only in using the corrupt text, but who they are and what they believe. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Now, let's read together, reading. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, 
believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now, maybe I just randomly ask, Gracia, who is this verse talking about? Say again. About? God. All right, you say it's about God. Which person in the Trinity? Say again. Must be Jesus, right? Jesus. Because you look at the description. Now, who is the one manifest in the flesh? We know that Jesus came in the flesh. We've been studying it last few weeks, that the high and holy God came, on, came to earth and took on human form. He needs to be taking on human form because he's here to die for humans. So he must, to be representative of man, take on the human flesh and die and pay for sins as a human. But in this case, perfect human. So any religion would not argue. Who came in the flesh in the Christian religion? Jesus Christ. They won't argue. Now, then, um, justifying the spirit, sin of angels, who? Jesus Christ, right? The angels came to support him when he was praying in his human body. Now, preach unto the Gentiles. Who is preached unto the Gentiles? Jesus Christ. Believed on in the world, believe on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. Received up into glory, talks of his resurrection and his returning to heaven in glory, right? So this verse is, is any religion would know that this is about Jesus Christ, okay? But why would a young child like Gracia say, who is this talking about? She would say God, because look at verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, and so on and so on and so on. If Jesus Christ is the description here, then Jesus is God. If there is one verse where the Muslims, the Mormons, the um, Seventh-day Adventists, and they would say to you, Jesus is not God. All right, there's a difference between us and the cows. We believe Jesus is the living God. He is the Christ. But other religions do not. Cults in Christianity, so-called Christianity to them, does not believe that. This is one verse that is indisputable in the Bible. Now, but Van Smith, he knows that among all the texts in here, he must fight for those that has been corrupted earlier on that has changed this verse. Now, the word God in Greek is theos, right? Theos. The word hos in Greek is this is God. This is he. This is he. Like a man, he, that's all. A normal human being, that is a male, he, that's all, hos. They say, oh, of course, those that corrupted the text, they would remove this too and just leave it, leave this. Oh, no, no. You know, people copied it wrongly. When they're copying, they accidentally added theta and epsilon in Greek. It should not be there. They accidentally added it. Now, he fought very hard. And... 
the committee relented. Say, all right, all right, all right. We, we, use, we will use the text that says he. Now, what is the big problem? By and large, most modern English version, you will see the word he. What's the big deal? One small word changed. The definitive verse that proves the divinity of Christ. Now, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, if it is he that was manifest in the flesh, what's the big deal? Jesus is just he. Jesus is just a, a, a guy, a male, he, that is all. It doesn't say that Jesus is God. Understand why the Unitarians had to fight very hard among many other verses. All right? I'm just highlighting one key one. You will see most of your, if you're using a modern English version, you will see this as he. Now, of course, over time, it became a very big issue with people who have used the King James Version and moved to this without understanding a lot of this background. Now, so some of them, you see in your Bible, it may put he, and then at the bottom, they will put asterisks or something. Oh, the best manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts, um, the most reliable manuscripts says he. That's all. Even if they use this, they would say, please note, please note. Well, if you really believe that that is the case, then why, why change it? Leave it as he. But they know it will displease Christians. As I've said many times, every time a Mormon, every time uh, a Unitarian, every time a um, Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah Witness knock on my door, and they say, you know, we want to talk to you about um, Christianity, and I say, all right. And I say, well, let me get my Bible. And the moment they see that I use a King James Version, they will say, no, 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 you cannot use that version. I say, why not? Why not? They say, no, most of your Christians, scholars, agree that these are the best Bibles. And this Bible here is not accurate, despite all this history. They say it's not accurate. So you cannot use this. So the Muslims, the same. I told you this story many, many times when we go for orientation day, very often the Muslims will come over to our store and they will insist Jesus is not God and they will try and convince our people that the store Jesus is not God. The Bible never claims that Jesus is God. They will always say that. And the moment I, re I take out my Bible or they see this, they literally tell me this, you cannot use that Bible because your Christian scholars say this is the best, these are the best Bible. Of course they want to use this because then you cannot say that Jesus is God. So you see, these two can never run. They uh, run, they, they never merge. They always run in parallel. Parallel means they, they will never meet. Never meet. At all. Now, then, translators again. If you are careful to read the preface of your modern English version, if you have one uh, for reference, Look at the translators. Many of these committee members of the different versions, they have Roman Catholics on the translating um, committee. Roman Catholics. Any surprise? Of course, because they have to influence Bible verses that support, for example, purgatory, that support salvation by works, and so on. They will have 
to change those. So that is why we must understand the history and then therefore understand why we use what version. Now, then number three, the, te the theology, which I've alluded to earlier on, the theology, the next T, the theology. Now, these people have very pure theology. Why? Remember these dates, the 15th century. So the translators that were translating the Bible at that time, what is their theology? What influences their thinking? Now, as you, those of you who study history, you will know that after the 15th century, the 16th century onwards especially, there were many new philosophies, um, a new um, way of thinking, isms in the world that were just sprouting. Now, one of it is deism. Deism. After the 15th century. Deism is simply this. All right? So, it's basically, well, God created the concept of, well, there was a create, there, there is a creator, and after he created the world, he left the world alone. He left the world alone. He's no longer sovereignly intervening and controlling the hearts and the history of men. He's no longer that. That's deism, that concept. Now, so these translators in the 1900s, uh, 1800s, the 19th century, the 20th century, they are people that have been, from young, influenced by the various philosophies of the world. Why do I tell you that? Because the deism would mean that God gave us the perfect Bible, but God did not continue to preserve it. God left it to men, like Westcott and Hort. They believe God left it to us to figure out which are the correct verses and correct texts. Now, remember I mentioned last week, between just Tischendorf and Westcott and Hort text and the King James Version text, there are easily 10,000 verses that are gone in this text. But they decide that King James translators believe that God preserved, God, God would use the church to, to know which are the texts, which are the corrupt ones, and cast them aside. They are, in fact, they're so obvious, they're corruptions. They were also influenced by, at the time, those of you who study history, you know textual criticism and higher criticism. At the time in the literature world, they studied, well, who wrote this? Was it really Shakespeare? Historical criticism. Then when they look at the text, is this part really written by the original writer? Let's compare the writings. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't look like him. So they had this kind of interest. Now this way of deciding literature crept also into the thoughts of the translator. So they began to say, well, let's use the way the literature world decides which author should be gen the genuine author, which um, um, part of that literature is really or not written by them. So they adopted textual criticism to decide which verse, which text to use. So, you know, this, 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 this is corruption on top of corruption. Because that is how they think these people back here, they were not tainted by these isms. 
All right, so the theology was another problem. Next week, we learned the last T and also answer some of the questions, the common arguments. The King James Bible is very difficult to read. The King James um, Bible is, well, or they say, well, you know, the errors are so little and so minor, it doesn't matter. Or they will say, well, you know, yes, we acknowledge that there are, there are errors, but don't worry. Doctrines about salvation, they are all preserved, and so on and so on. And God did not promise to preserve. We'll look at those common arguments and understand them. Let us prepare our hearts to pray.